Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never podcast, exploring the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher, urban fantasy done right. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus episodes of a more topical nature. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources, including the books, short stories, graphic novels, and blog posts, interviews, and panels from the butcher himself. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality, fantasy violence, and very real violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. Really quickly, I'd like to share with all seven of you <laughs> that with the release of episode five, I have passed a hundred downloads. This is more than I thought I could have hoped for. Even though I've not managed a regular release schedule, I'm thrilled and I'm having fun and I'm going to keep at it and I hope you enjoy it. So let's draw our circle and step through the way to the never, never. Episode six eloquent in times of crisis. Recorded September 23rd, 2020. Covering Stormfront, Book 1, Chapters 13 and 14. In this episode. Chapter 13, Susan and the Toad Demon. Harry has made too many plans, and just as his date with Susan and his appointment with Linda are about to simultaneously go hilariously wrong, the part of Linda will be played by... A toad demon sent to kill them. Susan drinks the wrong potion, and now the escape is going hilariously wrong instead. Chapter 14, The Shadow Man and the Authorities. While Susan's altered state is trying urgently to fuck Harry despite the danger, Harry trades Bob a 24-hour pass out of the skull for tossing him the actual escape potion, and they make it out of the apartment into the storm. Naked, with nothing but a staff and some soap in his eyes, Harry spanks the demon summoner's shadow hologram, and then harnesses the lightning to rain demon chunkles upon the street outside. Warden Morgan is not amused. Neither is Chicago PD. We've got subverted tropes, a couple of possible inconsistencies, homage to the true lord of the apartment, more on the nature of Bob, and a non-stop thrilling comedy of errors. Before we begin in earnest, I'd like to address an elephant in the room. My peeps, I have neglected until now to talk about Mr. Criminal, I know, I'm ashamed. But we'll fix this now. Mr. is Harry's enormous gray tomcat, battle-scarred and missing some of an ear and most of his tail. Possibly one of his parents was a wildcat of some kind? Mr.'s behavior clearly states the objective fact that Harry's presence in the apartment is only tolerated because of the regular human food feedings he receives whenever Mr. comes back from walkabout, what Harry calls his ramblings. Mr. reminds me of a cross between a couple of cats that I lived with, belonging to college roommates. One was a spotted tabby Tom, a scrapper with a bobcat sire. My roommates named him Musashi, Brave Fencer. He liked licking beer from the inner walls of pint glasses that were left about. He liked being spanked rather than petted or scratched and would protest loudly and sometimes bite you if you stopped spanking him. And he lorded over the other house cats. Darwin, who we found in the warm undercarriage of a Volkswagen rabbit, not quite a beetle, but hey, 
and feet, so named because he licked feet, cuddled with socks, and chewed shoes like a puppy. The other cat was a gentle and very well-behaved Russian blue, Static. Static was a little overweight and whined for more food than was healthy, but he was the sweetest cuddlebug you ever did saw. The similarities between Mr. and the various cats in my life just tickle me. Masashi's half-wild ancestry, taste for human food, and king of the castle attitude, Darwin and his connection to the Volkswagen, and Static's solid gray coat. Oh, even the name Static is thematically appropriate. Anyway, Mr. is a great cat, and Jim writes his character brilliantly. Quote, Right now, he looked up and mrowed at me in an annoyed tone. Unquote. Mrowed. That's M-R-O-W-E-D. And it's definitely something cats can do in different tones. There are hungry mrows, startled mrows, let me out mrows, which double is let me in mrows, keep spanking me mrows, and indeed, annoyed mrows. And there's this. Quote, Mr. As was his just due, entered before I did. Unquote. He has absolutely nailed writing a cat. Now, I'm not saying anything new. Many fans have asked about or commented on it in Q&As, assuming that he'd lived with cats for forever. But Jim didn't have cats as pets until just a couple of years ago. So I suppose he nailed it on instinct. Talented jerk. So when I miss something really important like this, please feel free to let me know. Which brings us to the context section. Here we discuss the series' overarching plot, groundwork, character intros, and world building, as well as any meta aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, foreshadowing, and theory. Chapter 13, Susan and the Toad Demon. Harry wakes to the crashing of thunder, supremely disoriented. Mr. Harry's cat has just left the warmth of Harry's bed and is now hiding from the storm. Harry can't find his robe, but Murphy has left his duster folded on a chair. It was decorated by a bit of money and a note indicating that he would pay her back. See? Murph is good people. Harry then talks about the storm outside and how it muddles his wizard senses, which felt it differently than most people. Quote, it was raw energy up there, naked and pulsing through the clouds. I could feel the water in the rain and clouds, the moving air blowing the droplets in gusts against the house above. I could sense, waiting, the fire of the deadly lightning, leaping from cloud to cloud above, and seeking a path of least resistance to the patient, timeless earth that bore the brunt of the storm's attack. All four elements, interacting, moving, energy flashing from place to place in each of its forms. There was a lot of potential in storms that a sorcerer could tap into if he was desperate or stupid enough. A lot of energy to be used up there, where the forces of ancient nature brawled and tumbled. Unquote. And he finally starts putting it together. This didn't occur to Harry until now because... Tapping storms is volatile and dangerous. No one who knows magic does it. He calls one who does either desperate or stupid. Indeed, there was a storm the night that Jennifer Stanton and Tommy Tom had been killed. And there was a storm tonight. Now. Harry starts thinking how he could be offed at any moment. Quote, Lightning flashed again, and I counted three or four seconds before the rumble reached me. If the killer was using the storms... It would make sense that if he or she were to strike again, 
It would happen tonight. I shivered. Unquote. Now, this implies some understandable paranoia, but that is not the only thing in this passage that is noteworthy. So put a pin in that. Harry starts making food for him and the cat. In the next flash, Harry saw Mr. perched on top of the bookcase, calm but staring, all his attention on the front door. And then there comes a rapping on his chamber door. It could be the assassin. Harry couldn't sense a thing through the ambient chaos of the storm. Fuck sticks, he left his gun down in the lab, but then he remembers Linda was supposed to come over. Even though Harry looks like a filthy drifter and smells like a horse, it would be rude not to answer the door. Oh, hi, Susan. Yep, scheduled at exactly the same time as Linda Randall's interview. On tvtropes.org, it's called the two-timer date, but this example is done accidentally rather than purposefully, and it is exposed differently than it usually is. So I'll call this two dates one night. If you recall, back in episode four, we talked about chapter eight, Bob and the Potions. In that chapter, Bob is needling Harry about never getting laid, and Harry brags about Susan, which is the last time Harry remembers their date. He's felt ever since that he was forgetting something. Well, here she is, expecting him to be ready and dressed for their nice restaurant. And man, does she look amazing. Pearls, heels, black dress, long sleeves, tame henline, but absolutely no back. She is clearly proud of her hotness and flaunting it, flirting and quipping, perhaps hoping for more than just dinner. But she's still, just as clearly, after a story. Harry apologizes and tells Susan he's going to shower. Harry tries to get his mind clear and his body clean, lathering his shampoo when the other knock comes. Harry vaults from the shower, rushing naked and soapy to answer it before Susan can. He rushes through the house to see Susan turning the handle. If she saw Linda, it would not be an easy thing to explain, to say the least. In fact, quote, that would be the cattiest thing you've ever seen, unquote. Oof. Sure, jealousy is a common enough emotion when sexual competition is perceived, but Linda is very sexually adventurous. Threesomes on the menu. And Susan is a confident woman who is not afraid to ask for what she wants. How do you know they wouldn't want to form a thruple? You don't know. Even so, he's convinced it's going to go poorly, and just when you thought you were in a rom-com, ding-dong, demon calling, the creature was short, squat, unnatural-looking, part humanoid, and mostly toad. Susan screams, and the demon starts spitting acid at them through the doorway. She notices that the toad demon won't enter, and Harry gives her the basic concept of the threshold. Quote, Homestead laws, I said. It isn't a mortal creature. It has to gather its energy to push through the barrier around a home. Unquote. And for a moment, they freak out, waffling on what to do. More on waffling later. Harry tries to get Susan to shelter down in the lab where she won't be caught in the crossfire of the ambush. She complains that it's dark down there, italics and all which I didn't think would be a concern for a person like Susan, but irrational fears are just that. Then she asks why he's naked, and as he looks down in embarrassment, shampoo gets in his eyes. Jim, the literary sadist, ensuring Harry is afforded every disadvantage. And then the toad demon wrenches through the doorway, getting ready to spit more acid at them from a better angle. 
I don't remember this phenomenon being handled quite this way again in the series. Now, early series world-building growing pains are understandable and forgivable. And if I'm wrong, please let me know in the comments. My understanding was that any practitioner or creature of the Never-Never must relinquish a large part of their power to enter a mortal home uninvited, which they won't regain until they leave. In particular, I'll cite White Knight, Book 9. Quote, She began to shut the door. This is my home, and I'm not inviting you inside. Groovy, I said, and stepped over the threshold and into the apartment, nudging her gently aside before she could close the door. As I did, I felt the pressure of the threshold, an aura of protective magical energy that surrounds any home. The threshold put up a faintly detectable resistance as my own aura of power met it, and could not cross it. If Anna, the home's owner, had invited me in, the threshold would have parted like a curtain. She hadn't, and as a result, if I wanted to come inside, I'd have to leave much of my power at the door. If I had to work any forces while I was in there, I'd be crippled, practically to the point of total impotence. I turned to see Anna staring at me in blank surprise. She was aware of what I had just done. There, I told her. If I was of the spare world, I couldn't cross your threshold. If I had planned on hurting someone in there, would I have disarmed myself? Unquote. So there's the kicker. It could have been written off as a difference between wizards and demons, but beings of the spirit world some vampires and demons can't cross a threshold without invitation. I think it's likely that for many, the power left to them would be insufficient to keep together the composition of their physical body, which is made of spiritual matter from the never-never and powered by magic. And they literally couldn't remain alive in the mortal realm. Other beings who are tethered to the mortal realm, like wizards and fairies and some other kinds of vampires, just won't cross a threshold because they don't want to give up phenomenal cosmic power for such an itty-bitty living space, even if only for a little while. Not having magic would leave them feeling too helpless. So here, the demon apparently takes a few moments to gather together energy, say how a wizard does to cast a spell, and expends it on entering, thereby leaving its ability to do harm intact? Yeah, early series weirdness, I guess. Unless Harry is wrong, or lying, but he's our only point of view, and that way lies, like, Tyler Durden, Kaiser Soze madness. Sort of spoilers for late 90s thrillers. So the demon is inside, beginning to rampage, and Harry, classy as ever, swears, CRAP! And then explains that he's, quote, quite eloquent in times of crisis, unquote. Now, haha, ha, crap is not the most sophisticated thing with which to respond to stressful situations. There are words over which he does have command, even when he's being home invaded by a monster from another dimension of our reality. Words of power. Evocation is where Harry really shines in his magical talent. Harry shoves Susan toward the trapdoor to the sub-basement, as the demon starts xenomorph saliva-ing the shit out of the apartment, Harry funnels his terror and adrenaline to fuel some air magic and blasts a glob of corrosive spit back in the demon's face. Unfortunately, it does nothing to him. Makes sense. It was just inside his body to begin with. Okay, fine. Let's try this. With a more precision air spell, Harry calls his staff to him, using it as a focus to basically will the creature to leave. He calls on power and force, 
in Harry's mind represented by, quote, the long unbroken grains of wood in the staff, unquote. He shouts what amounts to shoo at it with a more dramatic flair. And while Harry stops it, he can't maintain the pressure and his strength will never expel the thing. In the deadlock, Susan shouts up, fishing for suggestions. Burn it! Shoot it! Blow it up! He tries to explain that he can't without blowing them up, too. This thing is too strong for me. What am I going to do? I've got it! Susan, there's an escape potion on the counter down there! Drink it and think of somewhere far away! Okay. Nothing's happening! Damn it if you won't do something! And then Susan comes back up the ladder and empties Harry's 38 special revolver at the demon. Three shots miss, two hit, and go ricocheting around the room, and one hits the beast square between the eyes, knocking it down long enough to allow Harry to retreat down the hatch and into the sub-basement with her. Lock goes the trapdoor, and Harry starts cleaning off the brass summoning circles set in the floor down here. Both Susan and now Bob want to know what the hell is going on. Susan sees Bob for what he is, as his skull animates for his words. That Susan saw Bob as more than a curio on a shelf, that he's alive, or conscious anyway, it's a capital B, capital D, big deal. But there's just no time. Harry uses a leadership voice to shush everyone, and pulls Susan, himself, and his staff into the circle, and wills it closed. You see, magic circles are not just for summoning, or for trapping magical creatures inside. They're also for keeping magical things out. So long as their bodies don't cross the brass and the circle remains unbroken, they are safe in there. But if an extremity extends through the barrier, the circle goes down and they're separated only by air and will subsequently die a horrible and disintegratory death. But for now, the acid is splatting short of them against the invisible wall of will the circle creates. The deep magic of the dawn will automatically banish the summoned demon back to his realm in the never-never. So all they have to do is hold that pose until sunrise. Too bad the effects of the potion Susan actually drank are starting to manifest. Bob tries to warn him, but Harry's trying to think. Then Susan, having forgotten the universe outside of her lust for him, starts trying to initiate sex with Harry in every way she can. She uses her words to entice him. Apparently Susan has thought many times that she'd like to die while making love. She rubs against his body, grabs his package. Remember, he's still naked. She tries to pull them both to the floor and that needs to stop pronto or there'll be a pile of goo. The frog demon stops pacing and spitting and just crouches down to wait. Before we move on to the next chapter, I'd like to take a moment to state the obvious. Love potions, lust potions, and really any potion that would influence a person's choices and behavior is pretty rapey and a highly immoral thing to feed to someone. This was a hilarious and totally unforeseen switcheroo, but perhaps the potion should not have been made in the first place. Also, despite how forcefully Susan is coming on to him, Harry does not take advantage of her altered state. That is all. Chapter 14, The Shadow Man and the Authorities. Susan is still pulling at Harry, kissing him, attempting to persuade him to basically mount her. 
Harry begs Bob for his help, and Bob pointedly reminds Harry that he's stuck in his skull and can't be of use unless Harry frees him. If Harry did that, Bob could throw Harry the escape potion. That's funny, it's spelled just like the word escape. Harry offers five minutes of freedom for the task alone. Bob hardlines, countering with a 24-hour pass or no help at all. Reluctantly, Harry agrees. Good for Bob. Though I'm surprised he didn't try to get more from the situation, maybe even renegotiate his contract. Bob had Harry over a barrel. It may be a case of thoughtlessly wasting one's genie wishes on little or immediate things rather than a more long-term, relevant wish. But he's a being made of thought, so I'm not sure what's going on here. Unless maybe Bob didn't ask for more freedom because he has to belong to someone? Like the One Ring trying to get back to Sauron. If he has to have a master, Bob wants Harry to be his. Huh. Could be Stockholm Syndrome. Or maybe Bob knows something about Harry that Harry, and therefore we, don't know. I'd love to hear what you think in the comments below. Bargain struck. Bob's orangey light pours out of the skull, wraps around the escape potion, and hurls it across the lab to Harry. Harry does the catch-it-almost-drop-it-phew thing as Susan reveals to Harry's ear in a whisper that she is sans underthings. Bob wastes no time and flies up the ladder and out. Now Harry has to convince Susan to abandon her singular focus to drink yet another potion. And here they both prove to be eloquent in times of crisis. I'll just quote. Drink this with me. I think I can cover us both in the focus department and get us out of here. Harry, she said, I'm not thirsty. Her eyes smoldered. I'm hungry. I hit upon an idea. Once we drink this, I'll be ready and we can go to bed. She looked up at me hazily and smiled, wicked and delighted. Oh, Harry, bottoms up. Unquote. Harry drinks half and gives her the rest. The two begin to... Fizz, maybe? Jim explains this perfectly. Quote, and then I just flew apart into a cloud of a million billion tiny pieces of Harry, each one with its own perspective and view. The room wasn't just a square, cluttered basement to me, but a pattern of energies grouped into specific shapes and uses. Even the demon was only a cloud of particles, slow and dense. I flowed around that cloud, up through the opening in the ceiling pattern, outside of the apartment, and into the raging non-pattern of the storm. It took maybe five seconds, and then the power of the potion faded. I felt all the little pieces of me abruptly rush back together and slam into one another at unthinkable speed. It hurt and made me nauseous, a sort of heavy-duty thump of impact that didn't come from any one direction, but from every direction at once. I staggered planted my staff on the ground, and felt the rain wash over me." Unquote. So I have to say, as a science-literate layman, I really appreciate the nod to and attempt to describe a facsimile of the world on the atomic scale. Matter is, after all, just dense patterns of really slow-moving energy, made up mostly of empty space. And that's pretty much what he saw. Nifty. Also, very cinematic there at the end, I picture the scene of Arnold Schwarzenegger and the good guy at the beginning of Terminator. Harry, half-lit, rematerializing dramatically in his name-day suit. 
lighting, crackling, rising on his staff to own the night. And then Susan ruins it by showing up sick from the two different potions and promptly vomiting into the gutter. The toad demon will soon figure out that they've fled the apartment. So Harry ushers Susan urgently to walk with him to a nearby road that has inadequate drainage and floods a torrent every time it rains. The toad demon won't be able to follow them. The running water would essentially nullify and wash away the magic holding his body together. She begins to limp away with him. Suddenly, someone speaks from the shadows. A strange, hollow presence vanishing in the flash of lightning and back in the dark. He begins standard villain monologuing. Your strength has surprised me. I will not reveal myself to you, but rest assured, my demon will kill you within minutes. What do you mean? Yes, of course it's mine. Mine to control. Etc, etc, etc. So Harry reaches out with his power and essentially tweaks the twerp's nose. How did you do that? I went to school. The Shadow Man seems genuinely nervous that maybe he isn't the biggest fish in the pond after all. And Harry sees it too, realizing that this guy has no conception of what wizards are as an organization or what they can do and what they can't or ought not do. This moment of one-upmanship is very satisfying, especially since it interrupted what seemed to be an intolerable display of overconfidence. But unlike a Bond villain, the man in the shadows actually had a reason to be monologuing. He was trying to stall Harry long enough for the toad demon to catch up and finish the job. Speaking of which, the shadow man calls through the thunder and Harry hears the ransacking of his apartment stop. Harry, always the gallant, tries to negotiate for Susan's safe release, but the shadow man claims she knows too much and they must both die. Harry decides the conversation is useless at this point and banishes the seeming, provoking the fantastic villain peace outline. Quote, Dresden, my demon will roll in your bones. Unquote. Beautiful. The toad demon is now outside and getting closer. But Susan just can't move fast enough. He's going to catch them. There's a moment when Harry thinks that if he left her behind, he could make it. One of them could live. But he realizes he wouldn't be able to live with himself if he left her to die. So he turns to face his death. Harry steals himself, letting the rain wash the last of the soap from his eyes. The demon raises up, hissing. Lightning flashes, thunder shakes the world, and suddenly Harry, desperate enough to try something crazy dangerous, raises his staff to the sky, drawing the raw, chaotic power of the storm to him. A quick, naked evocation and, quote, hell roared down in response, unquote. Six inches from Harry's face, the toad demon is thrown into the air and explodes in blue-white fire. Harry, dry hair standing on end, his toenails smoking, sits in the street in what is now a gentle rain. Susan, drenched in her evening gown, still dazed from the potions and the unbelievable events she just experienced, lies down. Someone get her a fork. She's done. But for Harry, there is no rest. For up walks Morgan the Warden, who saw just enough to know that a demon was summoned, but not enough to know it wasn't Harry who summoned him. He informs Harry that he's convened the council and that at dawn on Monday, Morgan's evidence will be heard. 
judgment rendered, execution ordered, and justice done upon the blight that is Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden. Then Morgan is gone, leaving Harry to ponder. Quote, I shuddered when he pronounced my full name. He did it almost exactly right. Maybe by accident. Maybe not, too. There were those on the White Council who knew my name, knew how to say it. To run from the council convened, to avoid them, would be to admit guilt and invite disaster. And because they knew my name, they could find me. They could get to me. Anywhere. Unquote. So now he has to solve all of this shit by Monday morning. Hard deadline. Fuck. Harry huddles up with Susan as the spotlights of a police car flood over him, and the loudspeaker insists he put his stick down and his hands up. Susan states unequivocally that this was the worst night of her life, but that it will make an amazing story. So we've seen everyone in this chapter portray their true natures. Bob is a horny, snarky know-it-all, the Shadow Man is an overconfident narcissist, and Morgan is hard-nosed, mistrusting, and uncompromising. Susan, the intrepid reporter, uses dating for both personal satisfaction and professional advancement. Harry's white knight nature has acquired him enemies who put those around him in danger. He uses quick wits, raw magical power, and his allies, in this case Bob, to blunder to victory, just to be thrown back into the bear pit. This is literally the story of his life. Jim, too, is true to form, piling difficulty upon obstacle upon travail upon impediment. Linda. No, Susan. Linda. No, Toad Demon. I'm naked and soapy. Susan cannot stand still. Bob is extorting me. Now Susan can't move. Batty's bent on blood and bone. Channel a lightning storm with no foci. Explode a demon. Oh, you got through all that? Well, here's your reward. You're going to be executed and arrested. Damn, Jim. Just damn. Now, you may have noticed something off at the beginning of this chapter, or it may have sailed over your head like the squeeze bottle Bob tossed to Harry. It escaped me every previous reread of this book. There have been a lot of them. In the last chapter, the brass ring as protective circle was explained thusly. Quote, I tried to catch my breath, stand straight, and not let any part of me extend outside the circle, which would break its circuit and negate its power. Then the toad demon spits his acid at them, and it splats against the circle shield. The toad demon punches at them, and the circle again stops the blow. It seems inviolable from the outside. So how the actual fuck did the potion get through? Is this uncharacteristic laziness or forgetful inconsistency on the part of the author? Back in episode 3, we talked about chapter 6, Toot Toot and the Pizza Truck. We discussed a word of Jim that talked about circles of power not being broken by objects that are of the circle's place, so to speak. Cold Days, Book 14, and the mud being of the island, and the leaves and brush camouflaging Toot Toots drawn in the dirt trap, perhaps being of the immediate environment. Well, it's possible, but a stretch, that to the human-made brass circle set in the floor of the lab, the potions made in the lab were of the lab. Please, this seems weak to me, so debunk me in the comments. 
I was originally planning to do chapter 15 too, but this episode is already well over 5,000 words, which will put us over 30 minutes, so it will just have to wait for next time. So, were the potions able to cross the circle because they were of the lab? Why doesn't Bob extort Harry for more privileges than just a 24-hour furlough? What was the reason the Toad Demon could cross the threshold and still attack Harry and Susan? What did you think of the tropes Jim used, the two-date same time and the accidental switcheroo? Also, why do we use the word waffle to mean turn over on a position when waffles cook in one place in an iron and it's pancakes we flip? Now, that last one has nothing to do with the Dresden Files, it's just been bothering me all day. Arigato, Dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is hosted on Podbean, and this time I followed the link and my podcast was actually there on the other end, iTunes! Also, Amazon Music and something called TuneIn. I don't know what that is. More platforms coming soon, so please follow, share, comment, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to see in the future. I'm coming up on writing the first bonus episode, so please let me know what subject you guys want me to cover. Would you like a character profile? Would you like something on Demon Reach, the laws of magic, or, I don't know, the Winter Court? So yeah, let me know in the comments or contact me at the never never podcast at gmail.com. Till next time. Take care.